Amen. Amen. Boy, did you enjoy that? I know, did Danny step off the stage somewhere? It, it was good to see Pastor Danny back here uh, on stage with us as, uh, there he is, all right. You know, it's been, what, nine months since you last led worship in that capacity uh, after stepping away from his role as pastor of worship and taking on the full-time role of executive pastor. Apparently, leading worship is like riding a bike. Once you, you get it, you don't lose it, right? So it's good to have you back up here, Danny. And I will tell you, I know a lot of folks uh, don't completely understand um, what an executive pastor does. Um, and they wondered, did Danny get demoted? That is not the case. Uh, he actually was promoted. Um, Danny serves in his executive pastor role uh, as my right hand. You know, every Moses needs an Aaron. Uh, every Paul needs his Silas or, or, or Barnabas. And uh, Danny is that for me and for you as, as, uh, as the church. Um, I, I've said this not broadly, but I'll say it to you now broadly. Um, I have such trust and confidence in Danny and how he and I align on, on how ministry should be. I have the fullest of confidence that if there is something significant going on uh, in a meeting and uh, he and I are in the room and I step out of the room, I have the fullest of confidence that Danny will, will respond in, in ways that I would respond. Uh, that's how tight we are in our understanding of the word and understanding of one another and understanding uh, what is best for the church. And I say that to say he is a gift to me, but he is also a gift to you. And uh, we, I praise the Lord for how he, he's flourishing uh, in, his, in his current role. Um, and Pastor David is away. Our worship pastor is away on vacation. He'll be back here next week. Uh, so pray for him uh, as uh, he and Jessica are uh, vacating, as we all need to do from time to time. We're in 2 Thessalonians uh, today. In chapter 3, we're coming to the last chapter now of the book of 2 Thessalonians. And uh, today's topic is going to be on prayer. Um, you know, there's been a, a, a recently been a reported increase in prayer across America. And what may be unrelated news, college football just started. Um, <laughs> see, some of you are already praying, I understand. You know, pr prayer and football have been in the news quite a bit lately. Um, during a Monday night football game earlier this year, January the 2nd, January the 3rd, it was a football game between the Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, and as that game was happening, tragedy struck about nine minutes into the game. Bills' safety, DeMar Hamlin, had made a tackle and he quickly stood up. And then he very quickly after that collapsed to the ground. People began to surround him. Not long after that, uh, EMTs arrived on the scene there on the field. They attempted to revive him, which they did. The game was ultimately suspended, of course. We know this. But during it all, prayer became a topic. Players knelt, obviously, many of them praying uh, on, uh, on his behalf. Uh, commentators began to mention as the game was unfolding, as they were trying to figure out what was going to happen to the game, commentators began to mention things like thoughts and prayers. A Bengals fan um, on the fly very quickly hastily made a placard and held it up with these words, pray for Buffalo number three, Hamlin. After the game had been called off and 
um, the, the fans made their, made their way out. There were fans from both parties, from both sides, that made their way to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, and they gathered outside that hospital to pray for him. Top-level coaches and players, some active, some retired, began to post appeals on social media saying, pray for, for DeMar. Sports commentator and former uh, pro quarterback Dan Orlovsky did something unthinkable, which we would thought had been unthinkable on ESPN, as they were, he and two other commentators were discussing what had happened. Uh, he bowed his head on live sports television, and he began to pray, actually prayed. And when he finished, the other two commentators who joined him in prayer, both of them said, Amen. It was such a tragedy. Everyone was concerned for his well-being, and so prayer was sort of cool. By the way, just so you know, he did recover and uh, has been added to the Bills roster. He made the, the roster for this year. We'll see whether he gets to play or not. But in moments like that, when a tragedy strikes like what happened on that day, or maybe go back a few, a few decades back to when 9-11 took place and people gathered in churches like ours and began to pray. When tragedy strikes, prayer's a cool thing. It's, it's an okay thing. But you know, in our culture, it's growing and increasingly not being so cool. Take, for example, what happened in Washington State a handful of years ago. There was a high school football coach there who was essentially fired for praying. See, for years, from, he had, would conclude a football game, win or lose, he would go to midfield, and on his own, he would kneel and he would pray at the 50-yard line. It's been his post-game ritual for, for many seasons. He never asked anyone to join him. He never expected a, a player to join him. But many players would do that. Even parents would do that. But the local school district got wind of it, and they didn't like it, so they ordered him to stop. He didn't. And when he didn't, when his contract came up for review, for approval again, they didn't renew his contract, effectively firing him from his coaching job because he dared to pray in public. The fuller story, of course, is that he sued. It made its way all the way to the, to the highest court in the land, to the Supreme Court. And a, a year ago in June, the Supreme Court ruled in his favor citing first, that he had First Amendment rights to express his faith, to, to pray publicly. And this past Friday night, he coached his first game since winning his case. Now listen, that's good, yeah. Now I say, cite these two incidences of prayer related to football because prayer is what the faithful do. They pray. And they don't just pray when there's a tragedy. They don't just pray when there is a felt need. They pray, and they pray often and always. And they don't just pray for themselves. They pray for others. They pray for one another. So today, as we're back in 2 Thessalonians, as I've told you already, as you know now, by now, the topic is prayer. And prayer, Paul's going to call for prayer not just for the Thessalonians, and he's not just going to pray for them. He's going to ask Will you pray for me? Paul's saying pray for himself. Pray for the Apostle Paul. And so I want us to read about it, and then we'll begin to open it up. And I'm going to call you to three prayer concerns that each of us need to pray for one another. So, so if you have your place in Scripture, we're going to be reading the first five verses of, of the third chapter of 2 Thessalonians. Let me invite you to stand with me, would you? Let's stand and let's read this. You follow along as I read it aloud. 
And Paul's going to begin the last chapter with the word finally, but he's got a whole lot more to say, all right? Paul has a tendency, he's like a Baptist preacher when he says, and in conclusion, and he goes on for another 10 minutes, Paul's going to do that, all right? He's, gonna, he's got one full chapter ahead of him, but he's going to say finally. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this message is about prayer. And so as we begin with the reading and praying over it, Lord, my single prayer in this moment is that you would burden us to be a people of prayer, to be a faithful people who pray, praying for one another, praying that the gospel will speed ahead, that it will be honored, and that, Lord, though the world may push back, though we may face opposition, that, Lord, you would deliver us and protect us and call us to remain faithful, people driven by your heart of love and being willing to persevere and be steadfast as you were. Lord, this is our prayer. Now open our hearts to it and compel us to do these things, not just in this moment, but to pray and to keep on praying. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Go ahead and have a seat. Frequently throughout Paul's writings, Paul talks about his intercessions for the people that he's writing to. He, he speaks about prayer quite a bit. And you often find him offering prayer on behalf of the recipients so that they know that he's praying, but he's also keeping himself accountable, I believe, toward praying for them. See, he often knows them personally. He's developed an affection for them. In many cases, he was the one that delivered the gospel to them. And so they ha he has a special interest in them, and he desires good for them. And so he offers prayer for their good a whole lot of the time. But the discussion that you see here, this is obviously a discussion about prayer. The discussion that you find here about prayer is a little different. Because consider how he prays and how he begins. Verse 1, he begins, Finally, brothers, pray for us. I want to very quickly say that, that, that word pray for us in the original language is, is in the type of a form of a verb that means that you pray and you keep on praying. It's not just, hey, I've prayed for you. I can check it off my prayer list and move on to other things. He's saying, keep me on your prayer list always. Finally, brothers, pray for us. I want to pause here for just a moment. This is important because instead of just offering a word of prayer, Paul is asking for prayer. Paul's saying, pray for us. Pray for me. And in response, he offers two requests. He makes two requests. He's saying, would, would you pray these things on my behalf? And then he'll follow this up with a prayer request on their behalf. So what you have here is he's saying, pray for me, and, I, and I'm going to pray for you in a particular way. It's a call for mutual prayer. There is something about the church that prays for one another. 
Paul is saying, pray for me and I will pray for you. Can I, can I say how different life would be if we took seriously this call to pray for one another, to be devoted to pray for one another? I mean, think about the, the amount of time throughout our Christian walk that we have spent talking about one another, maybe not in the most positive of ways. Or we've complained about someone or complained about one another. or We've criticized one another instead of praying for one another. What if we had taken all of that energy, all of that effort, all of those words that were spoken in the negative about someone else and we instead turned it into the positive and we took that time to pray for one another? What if we prayed blessings upon one another instead of complaining about one another? So again, Paul says, finally, brothers, pray for us, keep praying for us, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Paul is saying, remember, you, you needed me to come to you, to present the gospel to you, to share the truth about Jesus to you, but now I need something from you. I need you to pray for me. Yes, I am the more spiritually mature person uh, between us, but that doesn't mean that I do not have needs. I need you to pray for me. And the first request that he had asked of them to pray for him had to do with the word of the Lord. That is the gospel, the good news. And there are two things that Paul wanted in re relation to the, to the gospel. One, he hoped that the gospel, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. That is, that it would rush forward, that it would speed quickly. When he uses that phrase, speed ahead, it's really an athletic term. It gives the picture of a runner. Now, I know that it may not look like it, but I used to run cross country. Believe it or not, when I was in middle school, I was also playing soccer. I was very much in shape, very slender, very thin in those days. Oh, I wish those days were still with me, but they're not. All right, but I learned as I crossed over from soccer into running cross country that there was something that they taught us called the high kick. And as you were getting close to the, lot, to the finish line, and especially if you had someone that you were running alongside of that you wanted to outpace, you had to kick it into what? High gear. You had that high kick. And that was that burst of energy at the end so that you would speed ahead. This is the image that Paul is giving us regarding the gospel. He wants the gospel that he himself has been sharing faithfully. And he's gone from community after community after community doing everything that he could. He's now asking for the Christians in Thessalonica to pray that he could put it into high gear. That he could speed ahead with the gospel. That's the image Paul is giving to us. In other words, Paul is wanting the gospel to spread even more quickly under his ministry than it had been to date. I don't know if you get the sense of Paul's heart here, but there is a sense of urgency in his heart. He is desperate to get the gospel out. He is driven, compelled to share the gospel. There is such an intensity in Paul's spirit here, so much so that he's asking that I, I want more. I want to share the gospel more. So would you pray that the Lord will help me and help us speed the gospel ahead, that we would continue to spread the gospel. Note also that he hoped that the gospel would be honored. That's the same word in the Greek that's often translated as be glorified. He wanted the gospel to be honored, to be glorified. So what would be the best way for the gospel to be honored? Well, the best way for it to be honored is when someone would hear the gospel, that upon hearing the gospel, they would re respond to it. 
And in responding to it, they would also then give glory to God. So what Paul is asking here effectively when he said that he wants the gospel to not only speed it along, but that it would also be honored. He was praying for gospel and asking for prayer for gospel effectiveness. So we have a prayer request here, and I want to state it for you very plainly. If I would restate what Paul's first prayer request is in verse 1, it would be this, that we would pray for gospel urgency and effectiveness. That we would join him in praying for one another in praying for gospel urgency and effectiveness. And there may not be a, a, a time in our lifetimes where we need more gospel urgency than we need it right now. You know, according to one study, only 49% of people living in the United States today claim or consider themselves to be religious. Not just Christian, but religious. This is religions of all stripes. Not just Christian religion. Only 49% would consider themselves practicing their faith. Uh, uh, that same study found that only 39% of people that live in the, in, in the state of Florida would consider themselves religious. You know what that tells me? That tells me that there is spiritual lostness all around us. It's right here in our own community. So how did we get here? In a, in, a, in, a, in a nation that has claimed throughout its history to be a Christian nation, how have we become a nation that is so spiritually adrift and lost? I'll tell you why. In one, for one reason, the church has lost its urgency for the gospel. We're really good about playing church. We're really good about having our worship services and organizing our calendar and keeping ourselves busy. And we do a lot of churchy things and Christian things, but we've lost the urgency of the gospel. Maybe it's because we've gotten a little comfortable. We, we, we've substituted other things as being more important. And what has ultimately happened is that we've stopped thinking about the gospel. I also think that we've stopped praying for the gospel. We've, we've quit praying for opportunities to share the gospel. We've been, quit, quit praying for people who need to respond to the gospel. We, we've quit praying for gospel effectiveness. But we need to be praying for it. And, and can I tell you that praying for these things, praying for gospel urgency, praying for gospel effectiveness, do you know that actually takes the pressure off of us? You know, I don't know about you, but I, I do feel, even though I'm a pastor and I'm trained to share the gospel, I'm trained in, in, Christian, in, in Christian theology, I feel a little pressure when it comes to sharing the gospel like a lot of people. So I want to be obedient with the gospel. I also don't want to mess it up. I know that I, I, I carry a, a great burden as a pastor to make sure that what I'm sharing is right, that I'm sharing the gospel faithfully and, and effectively, completely. I want to share it well, just like you want to do. I don't want to mess it up like anyone else would want to mess it up. And I also want that person that I come to share the gospel with, I want them to be saved. But you know what? If I will pray for gospel urgency and I will pray for gospel effectiveness, you know where the burden is placed? It's taken off of my shoulders and it's placed upon the Lord where it would have belonged all along. As I pray that the gospel would speed ahead, you know what's going to happen? The Lord's going to begin to point me out to more opportunities for sharing the gospel. And as I pray for gospel effectiveness, praying that the gospel will be honored, I'm leaving the results into the hands of God himself. It's not me that saves that person. It's God, amen? It's not on me, it's on him. And so this first prayer request, I'm going to lay it in front of you. I'm going to ask you to join me in praying for gospel urgency and gospel effectiveness. Would you do that? 
In fact, let's do that right now. Let's just bow our heads and take a moment and let's pray for this, all right? Pray with me. Lord, we know the world out there is lost. And we know that there is no salvation for them apart from the gospel and extending the gospel call, extending the message and calling people to believe in you, to repent and to turn from their sins and to turn to salvation you alone. But Lord, it has been your plan all along that that gospel would be proclaimed by God's people. And Lord, if, if this country has drifted in its understanding of what the gospel is, I believe that that's upon us. It is upon the church. We've got comfortable, Lord, and we've lost a sense of urgency with the gospel. Meanwhile, this world continues to live apart from you, and there is no salvation for them apart from you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would call us to be urgent with the gospel. Let us be passionate with it. Let us be open with it. Let us be praying for it. Let us be praying for opportunities to share it. But also, Lord, we pray that as we share, that the gospel when it is proclaimed will be honored as people receive it. May our gospel witness be effective. To the glory of God we pray. Amen and amen. All right. We prayed for gospel urgency and gospel effectiveness. But when you do that, and I'm going to encourage you to do that. Let me offer a warning. As you begin to share your faith more and more, guess what's also going to happen? Conflict is going to rise in your life. It's going to happen because of the spiritual war in which we are in, which is why Paul asked the second prayer for him and for his team. You'll see it in verse 2. He says, pray for us. Pray that there's a gospel urgency, the gospel would spread, be honored. And then he says, pray also that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Remember, remember when Paul wrote these words, he's in another city from Thessalonica. He's in the city of Corinth. He is where God had directed him to be. He's doing what he was supposed to be doing. He's living for the Lord. He's living on mission, sharing the gospel and yet, even though he was right in the center of God's will, it's not an easy thing. Because as he shared the gospel, opposition arised. He faced opposition. Specifically, Paul tells us that he was opposed by wicked and evil men. Who these people are, we have no idea beyond Paul's description here. He just mentions them so that he can then offer this prayer request. Whoever these wicked and evil men are, pray that we would be delivered from them. So whoever they are, they're opposing Paul merely because he dared preach the gospel. But why? Why would they even care? Why would somebody care if they believe different from you? Why would they care if you shared the gospel? What's motivating them to oppose Paul? Well, Paul tells us right there the reason why they're opposing him at the end of verse 2. He says, why? For not all have faith. See, not everyone has faith. Not everyone loves the Lord. Not everyone has the Spirit of the Lord within them. And if you do not have the love of God in your life, if you do not, uh, are not saved by Him, if you're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you know what? That leaves you susceptible to being used by the enemy to oppose the gospel. This is why Paul isn't upset with them personally for this. He's seeing through a, a spiritual lens these people who are opposing him. He just sees the spiritual reality of, of the opposition for what was going on, for what it was. And so knowing that he was sp facing spiritual opposition... 
He sought to address it spiritually, which is why he is saying, look, we need to pray. And I need you to pray for me. This is a spiritual war. People without faith are opposing us because of the faith. And so I'm going to ask you, church, if you would pray for my deliverance, our deliverance from this opposition. And so speaking of spiritual opposition, read on to verse 3. He says, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and will guard you against the evil one. So he says, look, there are unfaithful people out there, but let me tell you who is faithful. The Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. Standing in strong contrast to the unfaithfulness of those who oppose Paul, reminding us that our God is faithful and he is true and he will keep his word. He is the one who will help us when we need it the most. And notice what Paul says that the Lord will do for us. As we're sharing the gospel and as opposition comes against us, he tells us he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Who's the evil one? That's Satan. Satan opposes the gospel. I'm still on down here. Can you hear me? Get behind me, Satan. Am I on yet? All right. I needed a sermon illustration right there. I think I got it, all right? (laughs) Paul says he establishes you and guards you against the evil one. The idea that he establishes you means that he strengthens you. He gives you resolve. But also he promises that God will guard us. That is, he shields you and he watches over you and protects you. And so what Paul is really talking about here, this request that he's asking for, he's asking for divine protection. Because the Lord is faithful, he establishes us and strengthens us and readies us for the fight. But not only that, he guards us and protects us against Satan, against the evil one. So let me rephrase this second prayer request for you in a way that you can write down and begin to pray for the same thing. Paul's second prayer request, it's something we all should be praying for, is this. Number two, pray for deliverance and protection from opposition. Pray for deliverance and protection from opposition. Let me tell you why this is important and why we would want this. We've talked a lot about this in the last year or so. In fact, last Christmas, we spent a long time uh, through the Advent season talking about this spiritual war that we're in the middle of. We don't always see it. In fact, it's hard to see it in the physical sense, but we can see the evidence of it. But there is a spiritual war going, a cosmic war. And if you're a Christian, if you've been around here enough, you know you're aware that this war is going on. Um, But maybe you've joined us recently, you've really not thought about it. You may not recognize there's a war going on, but you know something is off. Something's off in this world. You, You see the effects of it. The world just seems broken. We see diseases continuing to afflict us and wars and international conflicts continue to to unfold. Homelessness is becoming an epidemic even in our own country uh, that has been so blessed uh, from, from a wealth standpoint compared to so many other countries. We're seeing lawlessness taking over city after city in our own country. Drug use is rampant. The number of refugees that are fleeing brokenness, many of them coming to our own country, is is rising in exponential numbers. Culture itself is at war within itself as a culture. Our prisons are overflowing. We're seeing school shootings. It's just another day when we hear about another school shooting. People are adrift everywhere. Depression is skyrocketing. 
Suicides hit a record in 2022. Did you know that in our country? 46,000 plus people ended their lives last year because they saw no hope and they were desperate and found no answer. It is obvious that something is wrong with our world. And all of it, all of it is really the fallout of a war that began a long, long time ago. It's a war that Satan himself started. Satan, the evil one, the arch enemy of God. When God created this world, he created it to be a perfect place. A place where all of creation, humanity included, existed in harmony with one another. And and we had a relationship with God. We could know God and be known by Him and to fulfill our greatest purpose in life, which is to worship Him with our all. And yet Satan inserted himself into creation and began to tempt the first human beings. And they succumbed to the temptation, disobeyed God. Sin entered into their lives and into this world. As a result of that, All of humanity lost the privilege and the ability to know God and to fulfill their purpose in their own ability and strength. God and Satan have been at war ever since that moment. Now, as we know, God himself provided the solution. When he saw fit, he sent his son, Jesus, to come into this world to die for us, that he would offer up the penalty Uh, and and pay the price for the sin that all of us owe because we're all sinners. We all fall short of God's glory. And so that because Jesus died, was buried, and he came back to life, because he paid the ultimate price, we now can now have a relationship with with God through Jesus Christ. And we we, we can believe in him and we can repent of our sins. This is the message of the gospel. And friend, if you've never repented of your sins and believed that Jesus is the one true God and turned over to him, surrendering your all to him, then friend, you're lost. You may be one of those religious people out there, like I mentioned earlier, but you're not saved. You're not right with God. But there is good news because this is the good news. The fact that we, though we have sinned, God sent his son to die for us. The good news is that Jesus provided the way for salvation. We can be right with God. We can know him again. We can fulfill our purpose in life, which is to worship him and honor him and glorify him with our entirety of who we are. It is possible if you don't not yet know him, at the end of the service, you're going to have an opportunity to trust him, to turn turn to him. And so God provided a way through Jesus Christ. But mind you, we know that Satan has not yet been completely defeated. But one day he's going to be, praise God. It's coming one day. But in the meantime, he still wars against the Lord. He wars against the gospel. And I say all of this to tell you this. Christian, hear me. Every single time we share the gospel, we are stepping onto the battlefield against Satan. He does not want you to share the gospel. And if you are not actively sharing the gospel... If you're not seeking to share the gospel, you're not being moved by the Spirit to share the gospel, then Satan is winning the battle every time. Because you've not even stepped onto the battlefield. He will war against you. But when you do, when you're faithful and when you're obedient and you share Jesus, expect opposition. Satan's going to press back. Expect conflict if you hold to the truth of Scripture. And you know, Christians are seeing this pushback everywhere. It's happening everywhere. You know, in June, a man was arrested in Pennsylvania for attempting to read a Bible verse at a pride event. He had a First Amendment right to to share his faith, to share the gospel. He was literally handcuffed trying to read a verse out of 1 Corinthians. Two weeks ago, 
Uh, around August the 19th, two Christians were arrested for blasphemy in Islamabad, Pakistan. They've been accused of burning a copy of the Quran, even though they denied doing so. They believed that they were uh, being, being set up. And why, and why they would do so in an Islamic country where they go after Christians just for being Christians, they, they wouldn't have done that. And as a result, 80 Christian homes have now been burned. Two churches have been burned out, all in retaliation to these false claims. In Finland, a member of parliament now, an elected official, is currently facing a criminal charge of hate speech. You know what her crime is? She posted Bible verses on social media in response to her own church's support of a pride event. And now she is deemed uh, someone who has violated a hate crime. See, this is happening more and more and more in our world, and I expect it to get even more difficult in the days ahead. And what we are seeing elsewhere could affront us here, maybe on its way here. That's why as we pray for gospel urgency and as we pray for gospel effectiveness and as we step out onto the battlefield opposing Satan, as he pushes back, there will be opposition to the gospel. So what, is, what are we to do? You know, Satan wants us to not even step out onto the battlefield. He wants us to, to shut up and keep it to ourselves. So if we want to be obedient to the Lord and share the gospel, what are we to do? Well, Paul says, let's pray. Let's pray for deliverance, and let's pray for protection for opposition. In fact, let's pause right now and do that. Can we do that? Let's pray. Lord, when I was younger, it was easy in this country to be a Christian. In fact, Lord, when I was a child and as a teenager, to actually fit in. I remember the days when being a part of a church helped you to fit in. But Lord, those days are gone in this culture. To identify with the body of Christ, to identify with you, Jesus, puts a target on our back. And whereas we once were with the culture, now the culture is against us. And the reason, Lord, that the culture is against us is because Satan opposes us. Now, Lord, we recognize this for what it is. This is spiritual warfare all designed to keep the church and the people of the church closed-mouthed, quiet, and silent on the gospel. But Lord, we don't want to be a silent people. We know a God who saves, and we know a God who has given us a message of salvation. And you have called us to share the gospel. But Lord, as we share the gospel, we know that Satan's going to push back there will be opposition. So my prayer is, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you protect your people. But Lord, knowing that you, you offer your protection doesn't mean the absence of conflict. And so when conflict comes, Lord, we also pray that you deliver us. Deliver us from the evil one, protect us from the evil one, and deliver us in accordance to your will. And Lord, we pray this knowing that ultimately we are delivered for all of eternity. So Lord, whatever you need to do and however you need to position us, we go trusting that you will establish us and guard us in the Spirit. This we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's look at one last prayer request in this passage. This is in verses 4 and 5. And here now Paul's shifting. He, he, at first he was saying, pray for me in these two regards. Pray for the gospel, gospel effectiveness. Pray uh, that, that, that we will be urgent with the gospel, but also pray 
that you protect us, that, that the Lord will protect us and guard us against opposition. Now he's going to shift, and now he's going to say, here's what I'm praying for you, church. You pray for me, here's what I'm praying for you. Look at verse 4. He says, we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things we command. Now verse two, 4 technically isn't part of the third request that comes in verse 5, but I think it's tied. But, but I want you to note, he says that we have confidence in the Lord about you. W what he means is that Paul trusts the Lord about them. He doesn't trust them. Do you get the difference? His confidence is in the Lord. His confidence is not in them. And this is so important, and it really ought to be at the heart of our prayers and why we pray. We pray not because we have confidence in ourselves. If we have confidence in what we can do, why do we even have to pray? If we can accomplish it, what's the point of prayer, right? No, we pray because we don't have confidence in ourselves. We have confidence in the Lord, and we trust what He does on our behalf. So what is it that Paul is confident of, that the Lord is doing in them? Well, it's that you, will, will be doing, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. He's talking about them being faithful and obedient. Faithful and, he, he's, he's confident that the Lord will help them be a faithful people. That would also include being faithful with the gospel, by the way. Now look at verse 5. Here's where the, 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 the request, the third request, comes in officially. He says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God, and to the steadfastness of Christ. So here's the prayer that Paul has for them, and it's a prayer that the Lord would direct their hearts. Th that word direct can also be translated as lead, and it's the sense of making something straightforward and simple so that it doesn't deviate. It's a, it's a word we would use if we were building a road. It, it would mean that we'd make the road smooth, that we would make it straight, that we, that we would prepare it. And this is what Paul was praying for the Thessalonians. He's praying that, that the, the Lord will make a straight road from their hearts to God's love. So, so what does that mean? What does it mean for our hearts to be directed or led to the love of God? Some think it means that, that it's a reference to our love for God. Others say that it means God's love for us. I really think that it means both. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. But as we encounter his love, then he enables us to love him back. And the, we also then are able to love others like he loves. Not like how we love, but how God loves. And remember how God loved us. He loved us with a sacrificial love. I mean, imagine how, how we would share the gospel with gospel urgency and effectiveness if we loved our lost family and our lost friends in the same way that God has loved us with the gospel. It'd be a game changer if we loved our lost family, friends, co-workers, fellow students with the same love that God directs toward us. There's no telling what the Lord would do with that. But Paul didn't just pray for a straight road from their hearts to God's love. He also prayed uh, that the Lord would direct their hearts to the steadfastness of Christ. What, what Paul was describing there when he talks about the steadfastness of Christ, he's talking about the tenacity of our Lord of how he persevered through opposition as he was leading his ministry and went all the way to the cross and on to the grave. You know, our Lord, he never wavered. He never faulted. He never failed. He was steadfast through it all. And so Paul's prayer is that just as Jesus persevered on mission to reach this world, is that we too would persevere just like Jesus with the same kind of steadfastness and perseverance as he 
And so he's wanting them to love like God and to be steadfast like Jesus, to persevere like Jesus. So if we can take verses 4 and verse 5 and bring them together, we'll have one final prayer request, and I'm going to state it just like this. And it's a prayer request I'm calling you to pray, that you join me in praying for faithfulness, love, and perseverance. Again, this isn't something that we can accomplish in our own strength and in our own confidence. We can only be faithful. We can only love. We can only persevere in the Lord's strength. And that's why we ask him in prayer. God, we can't do these things on our own. We cannot be obedient without your involvement in our lives. We cannot be faithful with the gospel without you. We cannot love this world to Christ without your love. Lord, we cannot persevere through the opposition without you empowering us to persevere. So will you join me one last time and let's pray, this time praying for faithfulness, love, and perseverance. Let's pray. Lord, I am grateful that I stand in front of a people that by and large are a faithful people. And I do see the love of Christ in them. And I see that there are people that stand out among so many in our culture who claim the name of Christ and that, Lord, they persevere, they remain steadfast in you. Part of the evidence of that is that they continue to gather in this church house week after week after week. They come because they love you and they love God's people and they want to worship together and lift your name upon high. But also, Lord, it's a testimony that their lives are surrendered to you and they will not waver from that. Lord, I know that all that they accomplish in obedience and faithfulness with the gospel and the way that they love and in their perseverance, none of it is possible without your involvement. My confidence in them is not in them themselves. My confidence is in you and what you do in them. And so, Lord, as Paul calls this prayer for the Thessalonians, I pray for the people of First Baptist Church of Ocala that, Lord, you will help them to be the people of faith that they claim to be that they will indeed be faithful to live out your word day by day, walking daily in you, and that as you guide their steps, they will be faithful with the gospel. And that, Lord, they would mind their behavior before a lost and dying world because they need to let your love in them shine out of them. They need to be reflecting you, not them, not them, their old self, but reflecting you and reflecting your love so that when they encounter the lost of this community, they will see a person who genuinely loves them and want what's best for them. And that, Lord, they would remain steadfast in you, that just as you persevered no matter what, that they will persevere in the faith, even in, the, in being conf- confronted with opposition and persecution. This is my prayer for this church. And Lord, I don't want to pray it just now. I want to keep on praying it. May we pray these things for one another. In Jesus' name, amen. As we conclude, I just need to ask you a question. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask for an audible response. But you need to respond in your spirit with the Lord as your witness. How is your prayer life, Christian? How's your prayer life? Even this morning, I woke up way before the sun came up and I was praying quietly in my bed and I had to ask myself that that same question. All right, preacher, you're going to preach about prayer today. How's your prayer life? 
You know, my prayer this morning was, Lord, let me not just be one who talks about prayer. Let me just not be the one who will say, hey, I'm praying for you. But let me be the one who actually does it. I want to be one that is faithful to pray. So let me ask you, how's your prayer life? Are you faithful? Are you faithfully praying? I want to give you this challenge. If, you, if you've not been faithful, if you have been faithful, praise God, let's keep being faithful. But if you haven't been faithful, I want to put this challenge in front of both the faithful and the unfaithful when it comes to prayer. Would you this week pray three things throughout this week every single day and pray it frequently? Remember, Paul says pray, but it wasn't just pray one time, it was pray and keep on praying. Would you pray this week for gospel urgency and effectiveness? Would you join me in that? Would you pray praying for deliverance and protection from opposition? Would you pray for faithfulness of God's people? That we'll be obedient, that we'll faithfully share the gospel? Would you pray for the love of God to shine through us and as God directs our hearts to the love of God? Would you also pray that the church of Jesus Christ in this generation persevere? Would you commit to do this this week? Imagine what God would do and could do if every single person in this room this week prayed these prayers with sincerity. Can you imagine the gospel conversations that are going to rise from this? Can you imagine the opportunities that God's going to afford us? Can you imagine perhaps the possibility of people that hear the gospel for the first time in this culture which is growingly becoming less and less religious and even more so less and less Christian? There are people that are living probably near you in your neighborhood who've never even heard the gospel. And they're not going to hear it unless someone like you who knows the gospel has believed the gospel shares. Imagine if you began to pray about it first what God could do. I challenge you, let's start praying and let's start seeing what God can do among us. Now, I told those of you who, when I shared the gospel earlier about how God has provided the way of salvation for us through his sacrifice upon the cross and that those who believe in the gospel, that Jesus is God and that he died to pay the penalty of our sin, and that those who believe in him and repent of their sins can be saved. I, I, I pray that if there's someone here who is yet to receive him, that you not miss this opportunity. Trust Jesus while you may. I promise you it's what life is all about. It's always been about Jesus. It's always been about knowing him and being known by him and living your life for him. And if you would like to, to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to pray for you here in just a moment. And then following our service, at the conclusion of our service, the last thing that you can do is to respond in faith. And there will be a pastor right over at that cross that you see to your left, to my right. There will be a pastor there ready to talk with you about how today can be the day of salvation for you. Let me pray for you. Lord, how good and how wonderful you are. And Lord, I'm so thankful that though there is a war unfolding all around us and has been for a long time, and even though you didn't start that war, I trust you're going to finish that war. And that the most important thing that you have done in that war was to send your son Jesus to die for me, to die for, for those that need to be saved. And so, Lord, I'm thankful, and so thankful that that sacrifice was effective and that though you died for our sins, you came back to life proving that you were our, and are our Savior, that you are God. And now, Lord, I pray that just as you 
performed that act of sacrifice a long time ago and that year after year after year and week after week after week and day after day after day, people are hearing this message and responding in faith to it that even on this day, maybe among someone in this room, someone has heard that gospel and today they will say yes to you. Lord, encourage them to respond in faith, we pray. We ask this, we beg it, we pray for this, for the gospel to be honored in somebody's life today. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.